This program is brought to you by FortuneCopilot.com. FortuneCopilot.com helps smart business owners like you discover world-leading ideas which will transform your business. Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Business, UK's premier program for current and future entrepreneurs. I'm Alan Coote. On the program this week, the customer is always right. Right? No, wrong. The customer isn't always right. The issue is that some customers cost companies more than they actually make. We find out what to be done about it very shortly. Have you ever wondered how the price of a restaurant meal is calculated? Maybe you've added up the items on your plate. We speak to a leading consultant to the trade who says sometimes we're paying too much and surprisingly often too little for the food that we receive at a restaurant and it is causing some eateries to close. We discover what the cost of a meal out should really be. Josh Alex from Fortune Copilot is here. What have you got there, my friend? Netflix made over $8 billion last year, explaining why so many companies are now offering subscriptions. But where do you fit in and how can you implement a subscription model of your own? And we're on the track of the developments in big data. Now it turns out we've gathered more data in the past two years than the rest of human history. Incredible. How is that possible though? And what is it being used for? All of that and much more coming up on this week's Let's Talk Business. You know that old adage, the customer is always right. Well, that isn't always true. They're not. But nevertheless, if you're running a small business, you'll try your hardest to please them because you need every single one of those customers. One man who has a different perspective is Nick Hickson. Now, he runs his own business and is one of only three European Drucker Associates contributing to the global group developing new ideas for running businesses. Nick, my observation is that small businesses have a problem. Most good ones are, of course, busy, but ironically, not always focusing on the customer. Yes, I think so. I think certainly um, small businesses are somewhat wary of growth sometimes because they think, well, I'm busy now. I can uh, do some marketing. I can get some more uh, customers. I'll make some more money and I'll be rushing around like my bum's on fire even more hours of the day. Is it going to be worth it? And the general answer is most people agree who've been there. No. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, they've got to last all the way through to retirement, hopefully in one piece, and they do worry that they're going to have time for their children and their families and so on and so forth, and there's a balance and it's an unacceptable price to pay sometimes. And it, it inhibits the, the, the company growth. We can say it inhibits the economy's growth as well. Uh, I think to some extent you're right. Now, what can be done about this then? What should company bosses actually do? I think there's a fairly simple thing. We can borrow a concept from marketing. Marketing should be about getting the right customers, not just getting any customers. That's a good starter. So concentrate on the right customers. So you know what your customers you want and indeed which ones you don't want and what you're all about. And what so, are you saying as a right customer then? Well, that depends on what's good for you as to what you think is uh, unique about what you do and what brings meaning to your work and what brings meaning to your customers. So it's not necessarily the one that pays you the most sometimes the one that pays you the most gives you the most grief as well it's the old Pareto 80 20 rule okay 20% of your customers might give you 80% of the money but pretty much 20% of your customers will give you 80% of the grief as well and they may not be the same 20% so getting rid of customers oh I always advocate that yes <laughs> <laughs> you said that with almost literally a tongue in your cheek give me a little bit more on that okay I'll give you exactly how I suggest you do it because it's a very simple rule. 
you grade your customers internally A to E. And you tell your A, which are the good ones, by the way, that uh, they're great, because you should do that every now and then. You tell your D&E customers that you grade your customers A to E, and then you shut up. <laughs> and if your D&E customers say, ooh, what can we do? You work with them to improve them into Cs and Bs and As. And if they change the topic, you find a solution where they stop being your customers and you perhaps even give them to a lower-ranked competitor who might reciprocate with someone he can't cope with that you might actually want. It sounds excellent being able to get rid of your lower-paying, more-hassle customers. I think that's, that's great. Is there some other angle to this other than saying, I'm sorry, you, you're, I no longer want you as a customer? Did they discover it themselves somehow? Or is it like no, you can, you can, you're uh, inattentive to them? There it are various, various ways of doing it. Uh, you can just price them out of existence, but then they go and tell their mates, which is generally a bad idea. Yeah. I would simply have a fairly frank but polite conversation and just say, look, you know, the way our company is going, we're trying to develop in this sort of way. We wonder that we're not going to be able to support you quite as well as we have before. And I wonder if you might consider going to uh, Blogs & Co, because I've had a word with them and I know they can support you pretty well. If you don't get any joy, then obviously we're still here, delighted to, to help. We're not trying to get rid of you. We are. But, you know, <laughs> we're, we're trying to do the best for you at all times. How's and- that? Okay, so you can come out almost smelling of roses. I'm, I'm still trying to get my head around this concept almost. of getting rid of customers. It's, well, it's almost alien. The thing you've got to remember is you, your resources are fixed, pretty much, unless you want to throw more working capital into your business. So you need to get the best bang for your buck. And if some of your customers are just wasting your resources, time, money, whatever, then you can spend that time better with your higher uh, earning, better behaving customers who will tend to buy more things from you if you spend a bit more time with them. That's Nick Hickson. Thanks very much, Nick. More details, as always, on our website, letstalkbusinessonline.com. This is Alan Koo from Let's Talk Business with Josh Alex from fortunecopilot.com. Josh is a business editor over at fortunecopilot.com. He'll no doubt talk more about that a little bit later on. But for now, what are we talking about here? What have we got? Well, there was a time not too long ago that subscriptions used to be limited to newspapers and magazines. Nowadays, though, you can barely get through a day on the internet without seeing, hearing or even subscribing to some subscription service or another. There's the subscription boxes, of course. There's B2B subscriptions for software such as Salesforce. Airlines are now even offering subscriptions for frequent flyers, allowing them privileges like extra baggage and extra legroom. Everything that we want, we can get metaphorically and literally at our doorstep. Yeah, pretty much anything you buy or use or consume in some fashion can now be found in a subscription form. And to just illustrate my point, I had a quick scout around the internet earlier just to see what subscriptions are out there. And I quickly found out that of all the different types of subscription service available, subscription boxes are certainly leading the way with the, let's say, variety they offer. Before we go any further, though, what are you saying a subscription box is? Literally a box? It is literally a box. You subscribe and the box arrives and there could be anything in that box, depending on what you subscribe to, of course. There's cosmetic subscription boxes, there's pet food subscription boxes, stuff like that. So, as I say, I quickly found that they offered the most variety and I I found a monthly subscription to bacon. No way. I found a monthly subscription to black socks. 
But my personal favourite is Moss of the Month. No, you cannot put that in a box. Moss of the Month. Is this a genuine subscription it service? It's a genuine subscription service because, of course, the thing we're all missing in life is a different type of moss or lichen delivered straight to our door each month, isn't it? Yeah, back to the socks. Socks in a box. You can have that one. That's free. That is marketing for free. Straight there. I'll be amazed if that's not already taken. Socks in a box. So why is it that subscription services are so widespread? What's the appeal of them? Well, primarily they provide a recurring income for the companies that run these subscriptions. As you know, of course, a guaranteed recurring income is what so many businesses strive for because of the dependability and the security it offers. Not just that, but it doesn't take too many subscribers paying a small, in some cases large, amount each month for it to add up into very large sums of money. So how can companies go about setting up their own subscription service then? Well, the most important thing to do is figure out what type of subscription service to offer. In essence, there are essentially eight types of subscription a company could offer. Now, I've got a list of the eight here. Let me share this with you. And we can quickly talk through these different types of membership here. So the first one is a knowledge membership. Now, these are websites that allow unlimited access to information. It's the kind of thing that works best in a niche market where experts are quite hard to find. And this is the sort of thing that Fortune Copilot is doing. It is, yeah. It's no accident that I've put uh, knowledge memberships at the top of the list. I didn't think it was. No. no. So number two on, on my list here is buffet content. I have heard of this, actually. It's a very strange term. Uh, what you, I think you're meaning, what I understand it's meaning, is the likes of Amazon, streaming services, Netflix, that sort of thing, where you're actually taking what you want to consume as you consume it. Yeah, basically streaming services are a good example of the buffet content type memberships. Now the key here is that they regularly update it with new and diverse content. There's peace of mind subscriptions as well. Now, this is one that you perhaps don't see as often, but it takes insurance almost to a new level through monitoring alerts. Think Amber Alert or Radian 6, basically credit identity theft monitoring. I was watching the other day on the internet a brief video, which was an American insurance company. And as part of the deal in the insurance, they were putting something in your car that was able to get the data off of uh, the computers that are in your car these days and then send the signal back to a central bank which would then tell the insuree the status of their car if the battery alternator was going or if uh, they could actually save themselves a little bit of fuel in the way that they were driving. Very good. Yeah, I like that idea. That's a perfect example of, of peace of mind subscriptions. Now, the fourth thing on my list is front-of-the-line subscriptions. Now, this works great with products or services that are complex, ones that require specialists to fix it, especially IT services. And they're particularly useful for customers who aren't really very price-sensitive. Yeah. Consumables. A lot of people actually pay a subscription service for, for consumables. Yeah, consumables is another one, uh, an automatic renewal of items that typically run low. Great for office supplies or coffee, household goods, that kind of thing. OK, last few on my list, surprise boxes. Now, we mentioned this earlier. These are curated and customised packages of items. Now, they can encompass everything from pet supplies to cosmetics, art, clothing, lifestyle items, or as I've mentioned, black socks and moss. Moss is just a fantastic idea. One of the things that I subscribe to quite often, and I think I've got a couple going at the moment, are networks where you, you go and meet like-minded people. 
Yeah, networks are a great subscription. So you mentioned like networking, business networking subscriptions. That's a good example. Uh, things in this country like Zipcar, where you can share car journeys with people. They're ideal for products or services that get better as more people join. Oh, I see the distinction there. Very, very good indeed. And finally on my list is private clubs. These are products or services that are limited in supply. It's really a status offering, such as American Express Centurion. Have you ever heard of that? No, I've not. No, there's there's no, no surprise there that neither of us have heard that, actually, until I was doing some reading earlier. And uh, Now, this is the subscription that they invite literally only the wealthiest of clients to join. It costs several thousand a month to join, uh, but your, your little credit card is made of titanium. So you're paying American Express. Well, you're not, and I'm not. But someone is paying American Express the privilege of several thousand pounds a month to have a different type of credit card. I think there is more to it than that, but it's an invite-only club that uh, they only invite their wealthiest of clients. Well, I'll tell you what, if there's someone listening from American Express and you want to come on and you want to tell us about this private club that you've got, which is called... American Express Centurion. Then you are very welcome to come onto the radio and tell us a little bit more about that. I'm, I'm intrigued to see what the qualifications are. So I guess the next question is how can people get involved? For starters, think about what you already do. Which of the options that we've been through are most appropriate for you to implement? And are any of your competitors already offering subscriptions? Sometimes thinking about the right subscription model to use can require a bit of lateral thinking, especially when you don't think what you do could even be turned into a subscription. One of the most inventive subscriptions I've heard about was actually a story you told me about a locksmith and a hotel chain. Yeah, that was a very interesting one. What this guy had worked out, this locksmith, that he was getting a lot of call-outs for trivial things. Uh, the locks were sort of wearing out, as locks do. And in a hotel, you can imagine, that is a lot of locks to look after. So what he worked out that he could do, and he's only a local locksmith, he said, actually, to a few hotels, I will come round and I will service your locks, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Based on the number of doors that you have, it's going to be a few pounds a month for each door. And this was very cost-effective for the hotels and very good for him because he was getting a regular income from valued customers and they were actually having the lock service and therefore their customers were much happier. They were at least able to get in and out of their rooms. Problem solved. I think it's a brilliant example of of a bit of lateral thinking involved in, ah, how can I turn my business into a subscription? How can I get that recurring income? So... Go away and think about what subscription you can offer. That's my advice. Very good indeed. And this is part of uh, the sequence of stuff that you're doing over at fortunecopilot.com, I guess. It is, yeah. So if you want to find out more information uh, about what we've talked about, the eight different subscription models, there's quite a lot of information there to remember. It's all up on our website, fortunecopilot.com. And you can head to fortunecopilot.com as well to find out a bit more about getting involved with us. Very good indeed. Thank you very much, Josh. Alex from fortunecopilot.com. This program is brought to you by FortuneCopilot.com. FortuneCopilot.com helps smart business owners like you discover world-leading ideas which will transform your business. You're listening to Let's Talk Business, UK's premier programme for current and future entrepreneurs. I'm Alan Coote, still to come on this week's programme. Have you ever wondered how the price of a restaurant meal is calculated? Very badly, apparently. We speak to a leading consultant to the trade that says sometimes we're paying too much for our food, and surprisingly, 
often too little, which is causing some eateries to close. We discover what the cost of a meal out should really be. And we're on the track of developments in big data. What is big data and how important is it? Here's an interesting statistic though for you just to think about for a moment or two. We've gathered more data in the past two years than the whole of human history before it. How is that possible? And what is being done with that data? We'll try to answer those questions very shortly. Have you ever wondered why a simple meal out costs what it does and that some places can charge a modest amount while others much more for the same meal? Are the restaurants picking numbers out of the air? Ali Carter runs a company called Cater Cost. I met her in a kitchen, appropriately enough, and put this question to her. Quality ingredients are at the top of the list. First and foremost, ingredients can vary in price enormously, as I think you're probably aware. The overhead is the single biggest determiner of how much you need to make from the food that you prepare and sell. Overhead's the biggest money eater is gas cookers, gas cookers electrical yeah. equipment, everything in the kitchen just eats energy. So that's a big overhead. Chefs don't come cheap. Maybe the one where you're just having your cheap meal down the road has got a cook. Maybe the one where you're having a more expensive meal has got a well-paid chef who's had a proper culinary training. Obviously some restaurants, and there's just been one very close to me, it was very popular, and it's actually closed down. A lot of restaurants do close down. Is that a sense of them, like any business, not managing what they're putting into their products and how much it's costing and so on and so forth? Managing is the key word you've got there, actually. It's an exact science. Running a restaurant, making food, is an exact science. And so the list of ingredients that you put into any dish that you make needs to be precise. You would never serve a pint of beer in a glass and just guess it. You would never, if you had a sweet shop, just give people packets of loose sweets without weighing them. If you had a filling station, you'd never put petrol into people's cars without a calibrated measure of how much you put in. And yet the fact is that the majority, and I would go as far as to say 98% of independent operators, don't actually know what their dishes are costing them. They are guessing. And therein lies the problem. And so it might be good or bad for the visitor to a restaurant, but it's certainly going to be bad for the restaurateur. Is it a staffing issue, training issue? It sounds like it's, it's simple no, to fix. It's all of those things. Underlying this big problem is the fact that we have got what we call in the industry a whole load of sub-recipes that sit below the dish that goes out to the customer. So even for the simplest operation, you may have things like a gravy, a stew, a sauce, items that you make in a big batch, and then you actually serve it in a different size portion to what you've made it in. And that's where it becomes difficult to do an accurate costing. But it's absolutely vital to being a profitable restaurant or business. It does sound awfully wasteful if, you, if a restaurant doesn't have... That level of control. But that's the other thing. Restaurants aren't quite up to speed. If they're not doing a, a dish spec and they're not actually measuring things properly and using portion control and so on, it sounds all too boring and they'd like to guess it. But it can have a massive impact on your business. I mean, I put together this little thing here. So this is for a burger. This You've is, got a, an ingredients for a burger. Yeah, so if you go to a burger place, and, and as a customer, you would never know the difference between these two burgers, okay? But the first burger is made when the chef has a good day. He's following his dish specification. He's weighing everything, and he's putting it on the plate as it should be done. So he's using a floured BAP, 11p. He's using six-ounce homemade patty, and he's measuring that. He's using 
using three little gem lettuce leaves at 15p, two slices of beef tomato. They sound nice. Oh, God. And red, a slice of red onion. There's nothing complex here. A tablespoon of mayonnaise and two slices of cheddar cheese, okay? And you've added all that up. Add the price of the up. burger is five ninety five. Selling out, at out five, of the kitchen. Yeah, selling at five ninety five. Cost price of one thirty one. Yep. Okay, and if he sold ten of those a day for the whole year, day in day out, he'd make thirteen thousand two hundred eighty six quid profit. Nice. That's nice. Yeah. Okay, yeah. he deserves it. Absolutely. On the same burger on a different day with a different chef who's a bit slapdash. Maybe he's got a hangover. Who knows what's happened here? But. Same burger, but he's using a chia batter instead of a floured roll at 26p instead of 11p. He's forgotten where the ring is to measure the beef burger patty, so he just guesses it, and he guesses it. He's a bit two ounces out, so it's costing another 12p on that one. He's got a new person on garnish that he hasn't trained, and she does the garnish in a very different way, a bit more flamboyantly. All these things, little tiny things, make a massive difference. This burger, instead of costing £1.31, is actually costing £2.66. And that's the same burger being charged at £5.95... To a customer. To a customer. Absolutely, they wouldn't know any difference. No. However, to his bottom line, here we go, his annual gross profit's gone down to 8372 where it was 13,286. So it's actually nearly 5,000 pounds different to his profit. And that's just selling one burger. That's one dish. T- one dish. One dish. 10 times a day. Yeah. For a year. That is a significant difference. And 98% or thereabouts of restaurateurs and chefs aren't doing this. That's what we estimate. Wow. Yes. That is incredible. It's and shocking, it, isn't it? It is absolutely shocking. It's always an education talking to you, Ellie. Thank you so much indeed. And great. And I am going to now. I, it doesn't make any difference if £5.95 burger. I'd actually pay £7 for that burger, to be honest. <laughs> and then it'll make even more profit. Great. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks. That's Ali Carter from Catercost. I see down here, written now, is discussion about big data. Now, whoa, 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 before you turn off, hopefully this is going to be quite enlightening. Joining me in the studio, as always, is Josh Alex who's a business editor at fortunecopilot.com. This is a big subject, big data, so we're going to do it in, in two minutes. So, yeah, this is your two-minute guide to big data. All right, the clock is ticking. Let's go. Okay, now I follow a lot of people on Twitter and I see lots of times on a lot of the blogs and the websites that I visit, the media using the term big data more and more as each day goes past. Uh, but the term big data would imply that the one thing that makes it special is that there's lots of it. But that's not the case. Quantity makes up just part of this larger story. And conveniently, there's a thing called the four Vs, which can help us understand just why big data is so important. Obviously, the first one, and this is a pet subject of mine, is, is, is volume. Like you say, there's lots and lots of data. And more and more of it being produced every single minute of every day. Yeah, volume makes up a massive amount of what big data is. 100 terabytes of data are uploaded to Facebook every single day. Akamai, a cloud computing service, actually analyzes 75 million events every single day to target online adverts towards you. And Walmart, the company that own Asda, handle a million customer transactions every single hour. That's a huge, huge number. You'd be interested in this little statistic that I picked up the other day. 90% of all data that has ever been created was generated in the last two years alone. 90% of all data that was ever generated 
in the last two years. That is an incredible statistic. Scale is certainly a part of what makes big data big. The internet mobile revolution, of course, bringing with it the torrent of social media updates, sensor data from devices, and the explosion of e-commerce means that every industry is swamped with data, which can be incredibly valuable if you know how to use it. But as we just mentioned at the beginning, scale makes up just one part of what big data really is. Now, this data, of course, is sitting on computers as noughts and ones, but actually it's more than that. It's documents, it's tweets, it's posts, it's blog posts, it's video. It's not data that is structured. In fact, it's called unstructured data, isn't it? I think in the vernacular. And then the other stuff is things that are tabular, like your accounts that the bank might have. That's structured data. So it's columns and rows and numbers in columns and rows very nicely and easily organised into something that a computer would readily understand. All this unstructured data, on the other hand, isn't or hasn't been to date that easily understood by computers. However, things are, of course, changing. Yes, technology has moved on and now we can look at things like geospatial data, we can look at things like tweets that we can analyse for content and sentiment, and we can even analyse visual data like photos and videos and get information from them. And this previously, not too many years ago, you wouldn't have been able to do. And this is where you get into the area of AI and deep learning, which we're not going to cover in at all, probably never cover that on the radio. Uh, we'll save that for the podcast. But it is actually the way in which this unstructured data is being made sense of. Another one of these Vs that I want to talk about is velocity. Now, velocity basically refers just to the increasing speed at which we're creating all of this data. Here's a few facts for you. Every minute of every day, we upload 100 hours of video to YouTube. We send over 200 million emails and we post 300,000 tweets. All very impressive, but only useful if you can process it in real time. And it's that ability to process the data in real time that makes it really, really useful. And this happens in the background when you probably don't even realize it. So let's say you go onto a shopping site, for example, it doesn't really matter which one, you'll find that nearly all of them have recommendations down the bottom, or maybe even at the top, or maybe even a product in a different size, shape, or color that you hadn't thought of. The way in which they work are through recommendation engines, and data scientists are working with this data, trawling through all of this data, trawling through what they know about you to provide those little nuanced recommendations to you, unbeknownst to you most of the time and you just think they're being helpful. They're really analysing quite a lot of data in real time to get through that. And I think this real time point that you raise is actually very important. So when I'm visiting websites uh, online and I, I'm looking at shops and I'm looking at products and then I might decide that I'm not going to buy something and I go to a different website but lo and behold this completely unrelated website is now advertising the products that I was looking at two minutes ago in the side there and I think that's important because they know that I'm susceptible to buying a product. Had they have sat on that information and targeted me in a week's time I may be much less susceptible than targeting me a minute or two after having looked at a product. All of this is very well, of course, but it comes down to money, doesn't it, really, at the end of the day? Everything in business always seems to come down to money. So that's the final V that I wanted to talk about is value. 
McKinsey recently commented on some very interesting big data initiatives that the US healthcare system was thinking about implementing. And they said that if they actually went ahead and put these initiatives in place, then they could ultimately save between 300 and 450 billion dollars. This isn't pocket money, this is massive, massive amounts of money that could be saved with the implementation of big data initiatives. So what does all of this actually tell us about big data? Well, I can tell you one thing, that it's a very big subject and it's rapidly expanding, but it's also messy, noisy, uh, constantly changing and in hundreds of formats and virtually worthless without analysing it and being able to visualise it as well. So in the world of big data, the actual data and the analysis of that to derive information are totally interdependent. One without the other is virtually useless, but the power of them combined I have to say, is limitless. Now, I would say that because it is a pet subject of mine. It is a pet subject of yours. It's an interesting pet subject, though. You could have a worse subject of interest. Thank you very much for that. All right, well, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you, Josh. Josh Alex from fortunecopilot.com. That and much more information will be over on his website, no doubt, and you can head over there. Right, that is about it for this show. Thank you so much for being with us. I've been Alan Coote, and uh, you have been a star for actually sticking with us through this show. It's been amazing. If you want to listen to it again or you want to listen to any of the other shows that we have, then you can find them all on iTunes. Over 220, I think, shows now we've got up on iTunes, plus lots and lots of other little bits of segments that we've not had time to put into the show. All of it over on iTunes. Just search for Let's Talk Business. You can also find us on the web as well. If you want to get in touch with us, well, we'll be delighted to hear from you, of course. On Twitter, that is the best way to do it. We're at LTB Show at LTB. Be show. I'm Alan Cooch. You can also find me on Twitter at the Alan Cooch. This program was edited by Sean Burns. It's been a Monogram Media production. We will see you next time. This program was brought to you by FortuneCopilot.com. FortuneCopilot.com helps smart business owners like you discover world-leading ideas which will transform your business.